Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX and today we've got some interesting stories for you, some this day in science such as uh, German physiologists who measure gross metabolism and we've got in our studio a guest today and it is Dr Ian MacDonald who is a co-presenter for Fuzzy Logic. Good morning Ian. Morning Rod, how are you? Uh, looking forward to a, another fuzzy day. Uh, let's kick off with... Oh, and we're going to have an interview with uh, the federal member for Wills. That's Kelvin Thompson. We'll bring that for you later in the show. First, let's kick off with some This Day in Science. And today is the birth date of Naranda Singh Kapanay, who was the Indian-American physicist who's widely acknowledged as the father of fiber optics and he coined the term fiber optics for the technology transmitting light through glass fibers yeah, yeah you knew that and uh, but also in things like endoscopy so when they want to have a deep view inside your body want to see what's happening inside your knee joint uh, a friend of mine recently found that he has uh, serious arthritis and they poked uh, the endoscope into the joint and they could see the build-up inside the bones. So it's not just computer technology. And light, of course, has lots of advantage if you're transmitting data because it's not prone to inter electronic interference. And you get the speed of light, which is kind of handy. So uh, fuzzy logic today will be brought to you by light, partly, because uh, somewhere in the connection of our equipment here and up to the studio and the sending transmitting station bits of fiber optics going on now uh, also we have carl von voigt born on the 31st of october 1831 and he was the german physiologist who measured gross metabolism in mammals and humans and uh, that's, of course, is where they measure what goes in and what comes out, basically. In, um, you, you come across these sort of studies, you know, where you see the athletes on the treadmill and they've got the oxygen mask on and they're measuring uh, the carbon dioxide and other... Yeah, I've definitely things. heard about them. I haven't done them myself, but... Um yeah, I guess they're almost using humans as guinea pigs, right? And and trying to figure out what, what they're doing and what they're producing and trying to make them that one second faster in that 100-metre race or that, you know, one minute faster in a bike ride or something like that. Yeah, well, if you like you say, you want to squeeze that last half percent because the, the difference between first and second is only a fraction of a percent. But this guy back in uh, early 1800s, mid-1800s, uh, he was more is more of an academic pursuit at that stage, so I guess that's an example of where some fundamental research has led to a practical outcome. But uh, what what he's showing here is that the body is a system of energy. Energy comes in, you know, chemical energy gets converted by the body and does some work. And then he's measured how that works. So that's, that's, uh, and we are in the sense of physical and chemical system, which is. Yeah, yeah, might have benefits for uh, weight loss and and things like that. Exercise, nutrition for people. Yeah, mm. well, it's it's a it's a basic part of understanding how we we humans work. So he was measuring the amount of fat, protein, carbohydrate broken down in the body, and he proved the amount of energy going in is equal to the amount of energy going out. 
which is pretty basic physics really mm. when you get down to it um also on this day, Sir Joseph Wilson Swan, who was born in 1828, and he was an English scientist, chemist and inventor, and he produced an early electric incandescent lamp. And the lamp, of course, you know, we always think about, uh, who was it, uh, Thomas Alva Edison as being the guy who invented the electric light bulb? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, it was a whole bunch of people who did it in various degrees. Uh, and so his experiments in the early 1840s uh, were, well, if we, his device had a partial vacuum, a carbon filament, and that was in 1860. And Swan's early lamps provided quite low light output. They w- didn't last very long, and they operated from battery cells, which kind of reminds me, you know, how we have built-in obsolescence, you know, the old filament lamp, well, light bulb, which have now pretty much disappeared but the lifetime of those is about a thousand hours isn't it it's not much right mm. so the manufacturers build these things so they don't last very long and then you have to go and buy another one that sounds like good business uh, yeah, it's good business not very good for the planet but uh in my garage i have a light bulb which dates from i think probably 1950 1960s thereabouts and it still goes. Hmm. It still goes. So you can build a long-lasting light bulb, but then, of course, we're using um, halogens and stuff like that, LEDs. Yeah, it brings up a good point, though. I have always heard that turning a light bulb on and off is actually using up more yep. energy and more resources than keeping it on, particularly fluorescent lights. Yep. I've gotten in arguments with people about this before. What is your view on this, Rob? Well, Ian, that's a really, it's a really good question, and I'm really glad you asked it, because guess what? In an Ask Fuzzy column that we had about mm, three or four months ago, we had that very question, and I put the question to the CSIRO, and the answer is bollocks. Uh, there is a very slight initial uh, surge of power used, especially in neon lights, because they have to ramp the voltage up to get the uh, to start the process of the current flowing through, uh, but the actual effect is tiny, and you can turn it on and off. Uh, I think the net gain is after only a second or you know a few seconds. It's really minor. Yeah, there we go. Answering the tough questions again. So trivia there for you, everyone. If if you need to need to get in an argument with someone about turning your lights on and off. It's better to keep them on. <laughs> no, 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 turn them off. Oh, turn them off, that's T- right. Turn yeah. them off, yeah. Because the switching them on and off doesn't take yeah. up as much energy as just leaving them on the but whole time. That's yeah. right. And a similar one, Ian, is um, car starting a car engine. And, uh, you know, there was a, a bit of a thing like you've got to push the throttle down a bit more to get the engine running and so is it more or less fuel efficient to leave the engine running at the traffic lights do you do you have a have a have you heard a myth or any opinions on that one uh, i haven't heard any any opinions on this one but in fact my um my dad just bought a new car a new mazda r6 a couple of months ago and it's got a feature on it where when you stop at, at lights or put the brakes on, it actually turns the car automatically off. It turns the engine off. So obviously somewhere in, in Mazda world, they figured out that this is more 
economically friendly for your car than leaving it on the whole time um it's just really really weird when you're driving a car and then suddenly you stop and it, the engine turns off yeah um but apparently yeah it's it's a it's a fuel saving feature and it saves the engine um some power and all that sort of stuff so who knows maybe this will be in all all cars coming down the track but mazda have started doing it really i, mm. d- I didn't know the manufacturers were doing it mm. but th- there have been tests where they turned a motor on and off um repeatedly for over a minute and then measured the fuel consumption to see which one whether you use more fuel turning the engine the restarting the engine each time and the answer is yeah like mazda have found out uh yeah you don't use any more fuel mm. So it's worth turning your motor off if you're sitting at the yeah. the lights for a long time, which is what I do. Although we do live in Canberra, so it's not as big of an issue as it would be in Sydney or yes. Melbourne or something like that. Yes, quite, quite, quite right. Oh, oh and, and back to our friend uh, Sir Joseph Swan. Uh, I now particularly like this guy because he is one of the early pioneers in photography. And he addressed the problem of photographic prints fading. So, you know, it's a chemical reaction on paper and a, and a change is in response to the light. Well, the, well, when you think about it, you've got to stop it responding to the light by some method. Right? Otherwise, it'll just all go white. When it, the thing will all go black, whichever. Uh, and you don't have a photo. <laughs> so he, he invented a, the, the dry photographic plate, uh, which was a really significant improvement. And uh, you you fond of um, photography? I, I do enjoy photography, but I guess in um, you know in this generation um, we're not printing as much as you know more putting things online and, and on the web rather than actually printing a physical photo. So um, I, I I guess for me it's a it's a great thing. You know, if you want to put something into a frame, it's it's great that it doesn't fade. But you're probably finding that less people are actually printing photos these days. I think it's it's also an amazing example of how technology has really changed the practice enormously. So I, I'm a real fan of Hurley, who was in the Antarctic and other remote places around the world doing his photography. And you've seen that famous footage of Shackleton's ship stuck in the ice, right, and, and the thing is crushed, and then the masts topple, and then the thing sinks, and then they're stuck. Uh, and, and it's just like this, wow... But for a lot of the stills photography, he's using these plates, which were probably the ones designed by, invented by Swan. But can you imagine being out in the middle of the howling ice and snow? It's like minus 40 degrees, and you've got these plates, and you've got to prepare the plates before you put them in the camera and everything, and you've got to slide them in, and then you've got to open up the shutter, and, and, then, and then you've got to slide the thing out. And now, of course, you just pull out your phone, and you go, schnick. Yeah, no, I can't imagine that. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, now, so some some less less happy events for the uh, pioneers of science. George Uhlenbeck, who was uh, born in uh, 6th of December 1900, died on this day. Uh, he was a Dutch-American physicist with uh, Samuel Goldsmith, proposed the concept of electron spin. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now... I, I find these guys really strange because electrons spin like this thing that's so tiny and, and it spins but it's not really like a ping pong ball or a golf ball it's and they've got uh, what's a colour and all sorts of strange these people state <laughs> they take strange substances also died on this day 
Johann Friedrich Meckel, who was born on the 17th of October 1781, and he was the German anatomist who first described embryonic cartilage, now called Meckel's cartilage, and that ossifies to form part of the lower jaw in fishes, amphibians and birds. And he also described a thing called... uh, or now called Meckel's diverticulum, hmm. a technical term there. Yes, which is I think is a little uh, side path in the the intestines. Uh, anyway, I, I, I included him because he's talking about jaws and fishes and birds and so on. And uh, a couple of weeks ago on Ask Fuzzy on, on Ask Fuzzy on Fuzzy Logic, uh, I played an interview with John Pickerel, who is the editor of Australian Geographic and Phil Hoare from the National Dinosaur Museum and John has written this book called Flying Dinosaurs about how birds are dinosaurs mm-hmm. and the dinosaurs didn't really die, we were left with birds so another example of how our old thinking is overturned and it talks about colour, oh and I was reading the book last night or a couple of nights ago and this in the adults only sealed section mm-hmm. Um, dinosaur sex. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Can you imagine hot dinosaur on dinosaur action? And if you're a 30 ton Apatosaurus or something like that, how are you going to do it without breaking off important parts of the body or damaging yourselves in some way? <laughs> yeah, I didn't see that part of Jurassic Park, unfortunately. <laughs> but that's the obviously an, another type of Jurassic Park that <laughs> might be coming out to cinema soon. <laughs> well, some of the members, apparently, uh, the appendages were humongous. And uh, they had to be very careful the way. So, yes. Anyway, I uh, recommend his book, Flying Dinosaurs, by John Pickerel. Does he go into how he found out the information about dinosaur sex. Um, yes, well, he's, he's quoting dinosaur researchers. Um, what do you call the people who study... Archaeologists, Arche- I suppose? No, or? no, that's human. Um, oh. Um, paleontologists. Paleontologists. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and I think the evidence is actually fairly slender, no pun intended. Uh, I think they don't have any fossilised dino wangers, mm. is, is my understanding because there are no bony parts associated with it yeah right so i think a lot of it is inference but uh you can guess that it was not a simple process Mm. not a simple process okay and uh now some items of news at the moment um an event an anniversary we're celebrating today uh, in 2000, the year 2000, the International Space Station began operations. And uh, that's been a very significant piece of hardware floating around out in space, spinning around the Earth. And there's a website called Heavens Above, and you can see... It'll tell you when to look up, and you can see the light glinting off these things. Oh, wow. And uh, there's the Iridium GPS satellites as well, and they've got big solar panels on them. And we were down in East Gippsland camping there with a the family. And you put in your latitude, your longitude, and it'll tell you at this time of the day, you look at this compass bearing at so many degrees off the horizon, and you will see the flare, the, which is the light flashing off the solar panels. Mm. 
be interesting um i haven't seen this angle in in the news yet but that rocket that was just sent up to the nasa space station that was exploded about um or detonated about uh what was it 10 seconds into launch Mm -hmm. because they realized something was wrong with it um what that means for the people up in the space station if they're not getting things that they require like do they run out or i've got a press release about that in fact and it says that the antares rocket carrying supplies to the iss uh, exploded during launch at the wallops flight facility in virginia on tuesday morning and yes as you say it went bang and in fact, there's been another big bang recently, hasn't there, in the last well, yesterday? Yeah, the other one was that the Virgin Galactic spaceship, yeah, um, yeah. one of the spaceships, Spaceship 2, um, crashed or exploded and then crashed. Well, um, I've got a bit more about that one, so I'll come back to it in a moment. But uh, back to the um, ISS one, NASA says there were no injuries and uh, the launch was originally scheduled, but a boat found in the area downrange was found in the area. Anyway, whatever. Since boats couldn't get safely to in time, the mission was postponed. Oh, that's the, it was okay. So it was originally it was postponed, but um, back to your point, the unmanned mission was delivering 2,300 kilos of cargo, including supplies, equipment, and scientific experiments. Mm. But they aren't going to run out because the Mir, uh, not the Mir, no, the Russian. What's the Russian space launcher called? I'm not sure. Uh, um, Soyuz. Anyway. Um, they, they've got enough to keep them going, so they're not going to be uh, like eating the we- the weakest member or anything like that. Yeah, but still, the the amounts of money they must be losing when these things happen. Oh, and, huge! You know, once again, it's coming from the media, so you're not sure on the reliability of the information. But um, from what I hear, it was just one guy that th- saw something was wrong and de- like exploded the rocket oh so he he hit the um explode button yeah and you know all those things that were in that spaceship have gone wow so well, yeah well i presume that he had a good reason for doing it i mean he, he, yeah i haven't heard the reason why but you would assume that would have to be a very good reason yeah well and then we should take the spaceship two which exploded uh yesterday when you think about it, what these guys are doing, okay, so you're going to get a, a large vessel, you're going to fill it with high explosives, and then you're going to light the wick and, and hope that it goes out the bottom. <laughs> I mean, it is inherently a, a risky thing, isn't mm. it? <laughs> yeah, for sure. They're actually suggesting that the fuel could be something to do with the uh, Spaceship 2 exploding. Well, I, w- I was looking it up this morning, and uh, they're saying that, well, according to the opinions, I don't think this is formally announced, but... Uh, the opinions that I was reading was that it was a structural failure. Oh, okay. And that mm. it actually wasn't the, the fuel burst that caused the problem, that the thing buckled for some reason. But the fuel itself is an interesting thing, and it's a new type of solid fuel, and it's uh, rubber. Uh, and I think it... No, I might have to check up on this. I didn't have time to, to, to check it, but uh, recycled car tyres or something like that, and they, they're ablating it, they're, they're, they're gasifying it somehow... And they're shooting into a chamber, mixing with oxygen, and and then the whole combusting lot shoots out the back, mm. and up they go. Yeah, I think we might break to a uh, to a track here on uh, Fuzzy Logic today. And when we come back, we'll be a little bit more this day in science. Some news about Alzheimer's, and uh, well, here's a bit of Johnny Farnham.
and a bit of Johnny Farnham there for you on Fuzzy Logic on 2XX. And don't forget uh, to subscribe to 2XX. Uh, it helps keep programs like Fuzzy Logic on air. Uh, we do appreciate your support. And there's also a survey that's now running. If you shoot off to the 2XX website, that's www.2xxfm.org.au slash survey. Please fill in at the survey, say how much you like us and what, what we can improve. And don't forget to say you listen to Fuzzy Logic and uh, we'll be watching. Thank you very much for that. And now, chocolate, we all like a bit of chocolate. And Ian, what, you've got a story here for us on chocolate. So some exciting news this week uh, came out in the science world suggesting that regular chocolate consumption can consume, uh, sorry, can increase your memory, enhance your memory. That's exciting news, right? Rod. Well, we're we all looking for things to <laughs> My memory's pretty crap. I don't know about yours, Ian. Yeah, so naturally, as a good science communicator, I read the original paper. Pretty much every media article that I read suggested that chocolate enhances your memory. That's exciting. I read the paper. The paper was actually published in the journal Nature Neuroscience. It was a high-quality paper. Um, there's a few little iffy things about it, though. The, the, the participants in the study, they were about 50 to 69 years of age. There was about 37 of them, so it was a, a relatively small study, considering um, the, the bigger studies that are out there. Um, but what they actually did was they consumed a drink that contained something called cocoflavanol. Now, cocoflavanol is actually found in chocolate, but in very, very small doses. The people in this study were given 900 uh, micro milligrams a day of cocoflavanol, which... Oh, I've read it. it. It varies, but I've read in, in different articles that it could be anywhere. That could be the same as about 20 chocolate bars. <laughs> 20? Yeah, so 20. you're not going to, to eat 20 chocolate bars in a day, and, and that's obviously not recommended. So these people were given a specifically designed drink. So, Rod, guess who designed this drink? Who developed this drink? Uh, let me see. Now, I'm thinking chocolate company of some sort. The manufacturers, would that be right? That's correct, yep, do keep going. Con- do we have a possible conflict of interest here? A possible conflict of interest, yeah. So the, co- the company that funded the study and developed the drink was Mars. Um, but they do they do point this out in the in the journal, and they do say in the in the acknowledgement section that Mars did fund the study and Mars did develop the drink. But still, uh, it, it's it's a bit of an iffy one to suggest that chocolate well, does improve your memory. It's actually this specific compound called flavanol that's actually improving, or, or they're seeing the improvement so in memory. If after after doing fuzzy today, I go down to the shop and I'm going to chow down five bars of chocolate. Uh, what's the, what's the effect going to be? Well, I'm not a nutritionist, but from just potentially doing that once or twice in my lifetime, you're probably going to feel very sleepy, <laughs> very lethargic, and uh, probably going to feel really guilty after doing it. But, but but my memory is is probably not going to be affected at all, right? Because to get the active chemical of what you're saying, you got to you it's. It's a small component of... of That's right, yeah. So you're getting nowhere near the amount of flavanol that these people were getting in the study. And what you're also getting is a lot of sugar, 
a lot of saturated fats, a lot of calories. Um, so yeah, a chocolate bar is probably equivalent to maybe a quarter of your, of your daily calorie intake for an average adult. Um, so eating five of them, you're already going over your, your calorie intake. And unless you go on a two-hour jog around Lake Burley Griffin, um, it's probably not something that's recommended ever. <laughs> no, I, I had an interesting experience. I don't often um, respond positively to someone just barreling up and giving me their opinion. I, mean, I think we're probably all like that, right? So I remember being at university and... Um, I was in, in the queue at the cafeteria trying to get something to eat, right? And I had in my hand a bottle of fruit juice and a carton of yogurt. And here's me thinking I'm being virtuous. I'm having fruit juice and yogurt, right? And the person, woman in front of me turned around. And she said, why are you eating that stuff? You know, all the amount of sugar you're having, um, your body is going to go through a sugar high and then it's going to have to work extra hard to get your sugar back down to normal. Then you're going to go through a sugar low and then you're going to get a craving for more sugar so blood sugar balance a great kick and it swings up and then it swings down and your body goes through these big oscillations and actually isn't all that good for you well yeah that that kind of makes sense but you know i'm not a not a professional nutritionist so i'm not too sure on the the what is exactly happening when you're you're taking in sugar but i mean sugar's in everything these days there is another study out there which is actually showing that um regular consumption of of soft drinks that contain lots of sugars um it is not a good thing either for for your memory or for your health um so you know i guess your thinking fruit juice is is good for you but yeah the amount of sugar that it actually contains for it to you know taste good um, and then also the natural sugars as well. It's probably not great for your health, but, you know, anything in moderation is fine. Because you're having it once, what's that going to do? <laughs> well, and, I, and I'm sure that, um, the, you know, it's all things in moderation, a bit of sugary actually is quite good for you because you use it. Well, we were talking earlier t uh, today about uh, metabolism. You know, it's what drives your body uh, mm. to a large extent is the energy you derive from sugar. So is sugar really the great enemy? Well, yeah, it's all about what goes in must come out. So as long as you're, whatever you're taking in is also being exerted through walking, through, you know, producing some energy, I'm sure that's fine. Well, I had a really interesting uh, question to ask Fuzzy, and I did get a, a, a professor of, uh, to, to write us an answer, but I'm not really sure I got the right answer or uh, the way he expected the way our writer our correspondent expected so he said when you exercise and you know the idea is you exercise to lose weight where does the weight go it's actually a really good question because the idea is like uh, uh, and you're dressed up in shorts and then you look like you're going to go and do some jogging or something after uh, the show today not uh, quite <laughs> well it's something some physical activity right yes it's a lovely day in Canberra yeah I'm going out for a walk after this yep Okay, so you're going to burn the energy, but when you say burn the energy, that's sort of like if I was burning a log, you would see the the, the products of the combustion going up. But what happens with a human? Where you know, if you're going to do some vigorous exercise, where does the mass in your body going? How is it that exercise leads to you losing weight? Hmm. It's actually, I think it's actually quite a difficult question. I suspect that well, you're not just burning it. Obviously, you're going to lose some fluid which is you just drink it again sweating yeah 
so that's nothing right mm. uh, but I suspect that it relates to your metabolism that by exercising you're adjusting your body's uh, the way your desire for food and so on but ultimately your body weight is the balance of what you eat versus what you put out yep Yes, and we all know what you mean by what you put out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, being, I'm being subtle for the radio. We're not going to use words like poo here. On, on, uh, but what about like also like things like proteins, consumption of proteins being turned into muscle rather than fat? Oh, okay. So the what the body does with what it gets because of the exercise. Yes, I yeah. guess that would be. So if you're eating things like a chocolate bar, yep. that's majority fat going in, so that's going to turn into probably fat into in your body. Whereas if you're eating something like proteins like nuts or or um or chicken or something like that, maybe that's going to turn into more muscle than it would fat. Um I'm basing this on things that I've learnt over time. I'm not exactly sure of whether that's happening or not. Maybe someone can correct me if I'm wrong. But, um, yeah, that's what I would assume is happening internally. Um, and then a lot of the excess stuff, so uh, excess proteins and things, are, are coming out other ways. Uh, it sort of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, like, so you, you, your body is evolved to adjust its... Um, inverted commas behavior or the way it functions according to the environment that it's in the amount of exercise whether you're getting enough food and so on and so it will make sense but uh we, we might get a nutritionist i think on to uh fuzzy logic so yeah, we can get real a great question yeah. yeah we'll get i think it's a deep one let's hit ourselves off with another track and uh, uh here we go on fuzzy logic two double x And Eagle Rock, uh, classic there from our archive here on 2XX. Don't forget uh, to go to the survey and to subscribe to 2XX. You'll find all the details on the 2XX website to xxfm.org.au. All right, now we've got a interview that we recorded some time ago with Kelvin Thompson, who is the federal member for Wills. And Kelvin is an outspoken critic on the subject of population. Here's Kelvin. Donald Horne is famous for having made the phrase the lucky country, describing Australia. But how lucky is Australia and how long is that luck likely to last? And what's the role of population in Australia's luck? Do we need a large population? Do we need a small population? There are different opinions on this. But one person with a strong, outspoken position on it is Kelvin Thompson, the member for the Federal Electorate of Wills. What, what is your position on population? Uh, in the first place, I think the world's got a population problem. We, we have 7 billion people in the world. We're tracking for over 9 billion by 2050. Uh, it's a dramatic increase on where we've been on this planet for thousands of years. And the impact of that rapidly rising population on our food resources, on our water resources, on our uh, energy resources, on carbon emissions, on stocks of fisheries, on um, endangered species, the, the way in which we're being urbanised and seeing these mega cities spring up of tens of millions of people, uh, this seems to me to be a, a real problem. I also think that Australia has a population issue and people might, you know, they might 
intuitively think, oh, but we're a, a comparatively sparse continent. But the truth is that most of Australia is arid and unsuitable for human habitation and that our population has increased dramatically in recent decades and is now projected to be uh, 36 million by 2050 and I think that the impact of 36 million by 2050 and, and rising by the way, no suggestion that it will level out at 36 million, the impact of that on our food resources, on our water resources, on our energy resources on uh, cost of living on the quality of life in cities with uh, traffic congestion uh, high rise uh, decreasing housing affordability. One of the things that worries me is that uh, when I was 25 I was able to put in a, a deposit and take out a mortgage to buy a home. Uh, my children are not in a, a comparable position and I see lots of uh, uh, youngsters around me who are no longer able to afford a home uh, anywhere within Cooey of where they grew up. So there are lots of issues surrounding the population growth which lead me to believe that it's not in Australia's interests and what we have to do is to chart a course to stabilise our population rather than have what is essentially been runaway population growth. Well in the, in the late 1960s there was the Club of Rome that predicted the world would run out of resources. Malthus famously predicted that us humans would eat ourselves out of food and our populations would crash but it hasn't happened yet, has it? Well, in, in terms of uh, access to food resources, the truth is that more people are starving now than used to. Uh, we have something like 2 billion people in the world today who are desperately poor, living on $2 a day or less. And the projections are that in future more people will starve, notwithstanding all the good work we do through AusAid, notwithstanding you know, Bob Geldof and all, all the international humanitarian agencies out there trying to help, the truth is that more people will starve in future rather than less and that um, this will... This is already fueling conflict and will continue to, to fuel conflict. So uh, I, I don't think that the, the future scenario is particularly rosy. And with all the problems that we have around the world, I can't think of any of them that are made easier to solve with population growth. I think that uh, every problem you think of uh, is made easier to solve in terms of stable population and I think that those countries that have a relatively stable population have outperformed economically, socially, environmentally those countries which have experienced rapid population growth. Well, won't technology save us? I mean, we're getting better at everything every day. I see my mobile phone uh, capabilities are improving enormously. Isn't technology part of the solution? Uh, well, well, technology is always uh, potentially useful and has the capacity to assist in solving problems, uh, but it has not proved capable of dealing with the, the problem of, of world poverty, has, has not uh, proved capable of dealing with the sort of uh, global issues that uh, that we are facing. Things like uh, global warming, global terrorism, global diseases, global poverty, uh, global financial crisis, all, all of those uh, global problems of course there can be a role for technology in, in solving them but ultimately uh, you need political decisions and political outcomes uh, otherwise my uh, concern is that these problems will only get worse. Mm. 
Well, from Australia, we all look very comfortable. I have my nice mobile phone, and we're doing quite well. Thank you very much. But what about the people in other parts of the world who aren't doing so well? Is this a bit of NIMBY Australia? You know, why shouldn't we say to the people who want a bit of what we've got, what we should, what should we say to them? Well, I, I think that Australia should be a decent and compassionate international citizen. And I mentioned to you before that I've advocated an increase in our refugee intake from uh, 13,750 to 20,000, and I'm really pleased to see that there are now concrete steps in that direction. I've also advocated an increase in our aid program to the uh, 0.7% of uh, gross national income advocated by the United Nations and which has been picked up by some countries over the years. And I'm pleased that our aid effort uh, is increasing in the way that it is. But migration as an answer to the world's problems simply will not work. As I mentioned earlier, there are 2 billion people in the world who are living on $2 a day or less, the United Nations definition of extreme poverty, and it's pretty hard to quibble with that, that definition. Their numbers are increasing by around 80 million a year. There is no country which can solve that problem. Not, not the US. The US is taking in a, a million people a year. I personally think that is too many for the United States. It is not helping uh, their country and not helping them with their circumstances or protecting their environment. But it wouldn't matter how many people they took in, they would still not be able to solve the world's problems via migration. America can't do it. Australia can't do it. There is no country that can do it. You have to solve global problems by helping people where they live through the aid programs and through the other means that we have at our disposal. And that was myself talking to Kelvin Thompson, the federal member for Wills uh, some time ago. And as you heard, we're discussing the topic of population growth. Now, in my perception that this, in the public sphere, population growth is almost invisible. It's hardly ever mentioned, and yet it's significant. Do you, what's, your, what's your take on that? Yeah, population growth is, is definitely a, a massive issue, but I think it depends who you're talking to as to um, what their opinion is. On it, I mean, if you're talking to someone in the country, their opinion on population growth is probably going to be very different to someone who lives in Sydney and is in traffic every day for hours, spending, you know, two hours of their day sitting in traffic. They're probably going to be like, yes, the design of our cities needs to improve. Yes, our population needs to be cut, you know, whereas someone in the country might be a different answer. Um but there were some points there that Kelvin was making that were definitely hitting home to me. So someone in my late 20s um, that would love to own a property but can't because we're looking at property prices these days compared to what we're earning, um, particularly in, in the science world um, as, a, as a young scientist. Um, is, is that enough to buy a house? Well, no, not if I also want to have a life as well i could probably save enough money to to buy a house but then i couldn't do anything else like go on a holiday or go and travel and things like that so um that one definitely hit home to me and maybe to a lot of other people out there as well about being able to to purchase a property 
I, I, I think that's a really good way to approach the question, Ian, because a lot of these things are really abstract. You know, you can just say population, you try and visualise 7.2 billion people. And by the way, there's a website you can go to called worldometers.com or .org, and it's got 7 billion little icons on the page. Yeah. Each, each one represents a human, and it's terrifying. And you can watch the clock rolling over, and it shows the growth in population by the second. And over the course of the last hour that we've been doing this program, the world population has increased somewhere in the region of 9,000. 9,000 births over deaths. Yeah, it always intrigues me that there are more births than deaths. Um, so do we know the number of deaths that happened during this show? Uh, yes, I, d- I didn't actually analyse it to look at the births versus the death. Yeah. This is just the net uh, population number. Oh, the, okay, yeah. But the reason I mention that is, is, like, you can say 7 billion, and I, I can't comprehend 7 billion, right? And I, I've stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon, and I've looked at the Grand Canyon, and I thought, my m- little brain is just not big enough to... to cope with something that's big as the and that's just the Grand Canyon or look up the, the night sky but 7 billion people it doesn't but what you were saying a moment ago about house prices traffic jams medical services polices education institutions they all suffering and this is down to the human scale hmm. well I think at the end of the day that's what matters if there's 7 billion people on the planet and all those 7 billion people can survive and, and you know, have enough food and get an education and, and buy a house, then there's nothing wrong with that, right? But there's 7 billion people on this planet and, as Calvin was saying, there's 2 billion of those people that have to survive on $2 a day and that are starving and that don't have places to live. Um, there's lots of homeless people out there. There's lots of disease because there's not education in a lot of those countries. So... You've got to look at it in in perspective as well, I think. So, 7 billion people in relation to what's happening in the world is there's probably too many. But if we could fix it or if we just look at focus on Australia, then yeah, there's definitely ways that we can improve it. And uh, what, what's also quite alarming is the, the way our economy works is that we, we suck resources out of the ground or, we, or resources out of the soil or whatever. And we, these are one-time resources in so many cases. Um, helium, an example, right? Mm. The world's supply of helium is limited. Yep. A- and um, uh, it's a bit of a hobby horse to mine, but we let it go in party balloons. And once that party balloon has popped, the helium disperses into the atmosphere and it is gone, mm. effectively gone. And there is no way of recovering it. So our economy is in effect like spend as fast as we possibly can all the cash we have in the bank account. I've got a great story on helium, actually. Did you know that helium is used in MRI brain scanning machines? And apparently America has like a stockpile of helium that a lot of these MRI companies need to access. Um, and there's a there's MRI machines in lots of hospitals and things, and they rely on these big um, tanks of of helium. Yeah, Yeah. and apparently there's been a lot of cases where the helium in these big tanks just sort of dissipates and and gets let out, and they're losing anywhere, you know, in the amount of $250,000 worth of helium just from a person accidentally pressing a button or or making a mistake. Just just leakage, really. That's right, yeah, yeah. 
so yeah it's interesting about like you're saying one-off resources are, are getting wasted sometimes by by human error so I, I can't imagine a population or a problem and i think kelvin says that in the interview uh, any problem that is made better by population growth I mean, if you, you know, pollution, uh, uh, fish stocks, uh, water scarcity, mm. the end of oil or, or peak oil, perhaps uh, global warming, and so on. Population growth makes them all worse, and yet, and yet we have vested interests out there, powerful vested interests, who say, "One baby, for you and mum and dad, and one for the country." Um, that's that's a kind of a, in, an insane suicidal logic, and uh, that's my opinion piece here on fuzzy logic. <laughs> now, um, let's move on to happier things, uh, Ian, because uh, you have brought us a gift, a great gift to fuzzy logic, and we're extremely grateful. Uh, what have we got? Yeah, so where um, I actually am currently the president of the ACT branch of the Australian Science Communicators. Um, and we are happy to announce today, live on air, that the Australian Science Communicators is going to co-sponsor Fuzzy Logic into the next year. Um, so you can keep on listening to Fuzzy Logic every Sunday on 98.3 FM. So I'm actually handing Rod a cheque right now oh. of $500 to be able to, to co-sponsor the show and to keep it running. Um, and we also hope that the... Um, uh, the Australian Science Communicators can get a, a bit of promotion out of it and also tell people a bit about what we do. So for those that don't know, the Australian Science Communicators is is basically there to support science communicators. Um, and in Canberra, we have a, have a branch that runs events around science communication and around networking. So what is science communication? Essentially things like fuzzy logic, where we are trying to make science accessible to the general public. So trying to get scientists to tell the public about what they're doing. That could be from interviews, that could be from them writing media articles, things like that. Or there actually are people that are employed, such as ourselves, to work for organisations to be science communicators. So to write about research in a way that is accessible for the public to understand. Um, so, for example, my day job is to actually write about dementia research. Um, so we're very happy to be supporting Fuzzy Logic and, and to keeping it um, running into the next year. And, and thanks, Rod and the team, for, for producing such a great show. And I'm um, also excited to be joining Fuzzy Logic next year as a co-presenter. Oh, well, uh, so huge thank you and a big round of applause. From what, yes, I can hear the, the, the claps all around Canberra. Thank you very much to the uh, Australian Science Communicators, and we're extremely grateful. And uh, we have a strong common cause, so it's a good thing. Now, science is not just about us having a good time and, you know, yakking about science, because we are self-confessed, nerdy-type people who like science stuff. But as a preceding conversation about population growth, Humanity is heading towards difficult times, and we aren't going to get out of this without science. Uh, we can't. Politics won't save us. Uh, just religion on its own won't save us. Any philosophy on its own won't save us. But we need a combination of all of those things, and science is a critical plank. So I have put in a uh, proposal to, for next year's National Science Week, and we're going to be running a big panel event called... Uh, can science save humanity and it's going to be a very high profile panel and we're going to get top flight speakers on board and we're going to discuss the topic of 
can science save humanity mm, yeah very very interesting topic well keep keep posted for that one so uh now just quickly to wrap up don't forget to check the Canberra Times and uh, various Fairfax media sites online because we've got to ask fuzzy column as we do each Sunday. And uh, this one is, uh, well, you've got a case of bad breath, maybe, uh, halitosis. And uh, our professor of dentistry has talks about the coating that you get on your tongue. What is it? And should I care about it? <laughs> Which is uh, one of the little quirky subjects we like to have on our Ask Fuzzy column. And I'm thinking one about sleep. We have a correspondent who's asked us why do old people need more sleep, young people need more sleep, and probably related to our conversation earlier about metabolism, I think. And talking to a friend last night, had a really severe, nasty lower leg injury, found his uh, tibia fibia pointing at 90 degrees to the rest of his leg, and he went into shock. So what is shock? Um, I would like to know. And so I think we'll get an expert to explain what shock is. Mm. And that's so keep posted. Make sure you tune in to Fuzzy Logic next week. Plenty more coming up. Catch you later. <laughs>